The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Thinking about prayer this morning, and we're arriving there through the book of James. But first, let me just ask you to take a copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of 1 Kings, because we're going to be picking up some Old Testament context. 1 Kings chapter 17. You can find that on page 299 of a pew Bible, and you do want to grab one from the pew rack, or if you've got your Bible from home, you need a copy of the scriptures in front of you, because we're going to be working out of two places in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings 17 and 18, and then in James chapter 5. Uh, We have been uh, studying together James since uh, the beginning of this year. We're uh, moving almost to the conclusion next week. We're finishing James chapter 5, but we're looking at James 5, 13 to 18, but Uh, James is making reference to something from the Old Testament here in 1 Kings, and uh, it's relevant for us to pick up that context so that we understand what James is saying to us when we get there. 1 Kings chapter 17. Let me just give you some some detail here, some context, uh, and then we'll read from 1 Kings 17 and 18. Uh, The book of Kings is all about uh, the period of the monarchy during Israel's history, and particularly We're looking at the fact that God calls a man named Elijah to be a prophet to uh, the the kingdom of Judah. And he is called to be a prophet during the reign of King Ahab. And King Ahab is one of the worst kings in Israel's history. And Elijah is called to deal with the sin of the nation during a time when unrighteousness and idolatry and sin was at an absolute apex. It was uh, almost never worse than during the reign of King uh, Ahab, King Ahab who marries uh, Jezebel, and uh, maybe you know some of those details. But 1 Kings 17 and 18 describes the background that James is going to refer to when we look at James chapter 5. So let me just pray and we'll read uh, God's word from 1 Kings and then beyond in James chapter 5. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word, for here we believe that you speak to us in a way that is living and active and filled with power and grace and help. We pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the things that you've given that we might believe and believing obey even as you call us here in scripture. And so, Lord, send your spirit to illuminate our minds that we might hear your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This is 1 Kings in chapter 17 and the first seven verses and then on in chapter 18. Hear the word of God from 1 Kings 17. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. And on into chapter 18. Chapter 18 at the 41st verse. 1 Kings 18 at verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat, 
and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his faith between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked again, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up the garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So like I said, this is the Old Testament context for our text this morning. So now turn with me to the book of James in chapter 5. Flip over into the New Testament to James in chapter 5, page 1013, if you've have got a pew Bible. But do turn there to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, moving to the conclusion. James chapter 5, starting at verse 13 through verse 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. Please do keep that Bible open as we look at James 5. And if you want to flip back into 1 Kings for context, you're encouraged to do that as well. But you see your handout there as James is talking about in this outline that we've seen, the prayer of faith. Now, let me just acknowledge to you something that is a little bit difficult here that there are probably more questions about this text than could possibly be answered in like four sermons, let alone one. But we're going to try to unpack this the best that we can to try to provide some clarity. But I am confident that you will likely have even more questions after we work through this text, though uh, we'll try very hard to get to the main point of what James is saying. Now, James, like many of you, has nicknames. Okay? You call people who are either endeared to you or maybe who are not as close to you. You have nicknames to them, whether kind or unkind. We call each other other names. James has two nicknames in church history. One of them is pretty, pretty well known. He is known as James the Just or also Jacob, which his name translates to that uh, from Hebrew to Greek to Jacob the Righteous. 
which is the same word for just. He is upright. James was known uh, to be a highly uh, man of great integrity. He was seen, of course, as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the brother-in-law to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, but a great leader in the church. He was known as James the Just. But he had another name that on first hearing might not seem so endearing. James was often called Camel Knees. Camel Knees. Uh, James is called Camel Knees. Uh, you might not think that that's a positive word. If you called someone Camel Knees today, they might not take too kindly to it. But Camel Knees was actually a positive thing at that time. Because Camel's Knees, they kneel down in the gritty, rocky soil of the ancient Near East. And James was known as Camel's Knees because he had a reputation for devout prayer. That James was a man who was always on his knees before God praying. And so Camel's Knees was a compliment, if you like, of a nickname in the sense that James is a very prayerful man. So he is concluding his epistle now in this section on prayer. Now, if you can remember back to what the book of James is all about, it's a short book, but it's absolutely chock full of this practical Christian instruction that we have really enjoyed that gets right to the heart of some really important issues uh, that we have been encouraged by, confronted with, and, and maybe even corrected in the midst of, I'm sure, as well. And here now, James is getting to the end of all this practical instruction, and he is concluding with this section on prayer as if to intersect the person who is going to say, you know, James, at the end of all of this, I just don't know if I can do what you're saying. I don't know if this is for me. All this Christian obedience stuff that you're calling me to do, I just, I don't think I can do it. And so he is concluding this section, all of this epistle, with this subject on prayer, as if to say, Christian believer, yes, you can. You can do it. You can live this life that God has called you to in Jesus Christ. And the power that you need to do what God has called you to do is vested in the extraordinary power of prayer that God has called us to do. So let's see these three things, an affirmation, an illustration, and an implication as James touches on this issue of prayer. Now, oftentimes I think people think that they regard prayer to the category of mysticism and mystery and uncertainty. And when people start thinking about prayer, they say things like, you know, I just, I don't think I, I pray good enough and I don't think I know what to say. And I'm, I'm just not, that's not my thing. And I'm not a good prayer, right? And they say, well, I certainly, maybe perhaps, I don't have enough faith to even pray in the first place. The reason why God answers other people's prayers but not mine is because they're a better Christian than I am. They've got more faith than I do. Surely that's why I struggle so much. Am I even doing it right in the first place? And so if you've asked anywhere in the spectrum of any of those questions, James is speaking right to us about the effectiveness of prayer, the purpose of prayer, the power of prayer, all these things. And so let's see this affirmation about the extraordinary power. And the thesis of all this is actually in verse 16. Look at verse 16 again. It's the main point of what James is saying. Verse 16, the prayer, second half of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so what he's doing then in verses 13 to 15 in the first half of 16 is saying, here's these circumstances and here's these situations in which prayer intersects your life as a Christian believer. And prayer has something to do with where you are in your context if you are in these different seasons. But when he says that prayer has 
power in verse 16. Uh, the word that James is using for power is actually a little bit different. Uh, usually when the, the word power is used in the New Testament, we get the word dynamite from it, uh, dynamis. It means explosive. It means grand. But the word that James uses for power here is a word that makes reference to the fact of a, an energy source or a power that is available but untapped. So it's like a, a field with rich oil that's in it, but yet has not been mined. It has not been drilled. It's got this rich energy source, this power, but it's not being accessed. And so James is saying prayer is like this resource, this power, this access that is available if we will only but go to it. So this prayer has great power as it works in these various situations. Look at them again through verse 13 to 15. What about your sufferings? It's kind of a, an obvious question. Is, it, is anyone among you suffering? The answer is, of course, yes. When you get together a group of people, I'm sure we would, we would be here for, for hours if we were totally honest about all the things that bear upon us in terms of a, a weight of suffering. Is anyone among you suffering? James says the answer is yes. What do we do? He says pray. Pray. And the word that he uses here for sufferings is, is a sufferings that, that is expansive. Any ill circumstance, any kind of trial, any kind of suffering, anything that comes into your life and you say that's bad and I don't like it and it brings hardship, James is talking about that kind of suffering and it's actually the same sufferings that he talked about in chapter 1 when he was explaining why those sufferings come into our life in the first place. What is God doing when those sufferings come into our lives? And he says when they do, pray. Help me remain steadfast in my sufferings. It's this sweeping diagnosis to our suffering, this prescription, pray. But what about, what, about your, what about your songs? He says, secondly, is anyone cheerful? Does anyone here have anything to be glad about, to be thankful, to be filled with praise? James says, let him sing praise, which is another way of saying pray. Singing, singing music to the Lord is, 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 is a melodious form of prayer. It's just singing pray, singing our prayers. It is the single most commanded aspect of Scripture. Praise God with song. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. When we praise God, we are relinquishing our grasp on our life by saying it's not mine and it comes from another source and I owe him my thankfulness. All things are of grace and it is all flowing down from the blessings of God. And James says if you're cheerful, praise him, pray. Praise delivers us from the idolatries of our life that wants to say, this is mine, and it comes from me. When we're praising God, we're saying, no, it's not mine, and it came from Him, and I'm, I'm, I'm relinquishing the gift to praise the giver rather than isolate the gift. Praising God with song is one of the main ways that God will deliver you from idolatry in your life by saying, it's from Him. It's not of me. And very briefly here, as an aside, when we sing to God, we're giving him our hearts and our affections, but when we sing to God, we're also being instructive. And I think that the Bible would add a special emphasis on this. You know who is especially supposed to sing? Now, all people are supposed to sing praise to God, but who needs to lead their family in songs of praise? Men sing. Sing. I don't care what your voice sounds like. The Bible doesn't care what your voice sounds like. The Bible would call upon you 
to demonstrate your love for God by raising your voice in song. Sing. It means to be with a cheerful heart. Now that's one particular application, but you could also have here, when he says, is anyone cheerful? It doesn't just mean happy, which might be helpful to us, right? Because uh, personally, I don't do happy clappy all the time. That's not really where I live, happy clappy, okay? This word for cheerful actually means buoyant. Cheerful meaning I am steady in the midst of whatever I am and choosing to be cheerful and buoyant. The winds are blowing, but I am steady. I'm buoyant. It doesn't mean trouble-free. And so when he says suffering and cheerful, it covers all ends of the spectrum as if to say it doesn't matter where you're at or what your circumstance is. uh, Prayer, whether expressed through song or just words, it is all of God's command to you to pray. So don't think that God is less pleased with your prayers when you're sorrowful than when you're happy. It's not true. Our Father in Heaven delights to hear the prayers of His children regardless of their circumstances. God is just as delighted in your laments and your griefs and your sorrows when you come to Him than when you're coming to Him to just say thank you because you're honoring Him by coming in the first place. So He says pray. But you also have these other circumstances as well. Verse 14, when is, when is prayer important? He's affirming the prayer when someone is sick. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Call together the elders of the church. And this is where I just want to acknowledge to you that these verses are, are absolutely uh, clothed with controversy among commentators, what they're trying to say. But don't make it more complicated than what it's talking about. He's moving from the the general issue of suffering to the particular emphasis of suffering through sickness. Not just the common cold, but sickness that makes you consider your mortality. Right? I am finite. That kind of sickness. And he, he said so far, in your suffering and in your cheerfulness, praise God, but when you're sick, now call the elders. Which might seem strange or a little bit unspiritual, maybe. Be clear about the fact that, that James is not instructing you to forsake your physician, okay? Uh, your elders are not replacements for your doctor. Elders don't substitute for medical professionals at all. But what, what is James getting at here? He is getting at this kind of normal course of actions that, that when sickness strikes a member of the church to such a degree that they are overwhelmed with with sorrow or overwhelmed with fear or struggle and, and, and they feel that they, they need to be lifted up. It is the church's role to come around them by representation of local church elders to pray for them, to anoint them with oil, as the Bible says here, to pray for them, right? So be clear about this. Uh, the Bible is not directing you to, to turn into some faith healer on television that's got two private jets and hasn't paid taxes in a decade, Who are you supposed to go to? The people who know your name? The people who love you? The people who pray for you all the time so that they will come to you and also pray for you then as well. This command still belongs to local churches just like ours and and we do this. And don't don't be concerned about the fact that the emphasis is not on the oil. I don't think James is emphasizing any kind of sacramental aspect to the anointing of oil. There's also nothing about formulaic about what kind of prayer to pray. He's saying, come and pray for them. 
And the element and the emphasis is not on the amount of faith that the person has. There are certain traditions that teach that, that the reason why you're not healed is because you don't believe enough. You don't have enough faith. James certainly isn't saying that. And that is one of the most spiritually abusive things that I think that could be taught to someone who's suffering. Why are you suffering? Because you don't have enough faith. You're not good enough. The gospel is certainly not saying that to you when you're suffering. The gospel is saying that for whatever reason, whether for particular consequence or something totally mysterious, you are in this set of circumstances. Let us pray for you that you might remain steadfast under this trial and bless God in the midst of your suffering as well in the midst of your joys. He's saying all those things. Is it possible that you may be healed? Yes. Does God ordinarily heal through the means of his providence through medicine? Yes. Does God ever intervene in miraculous ways? Who would dare say no? Who would dare? We're commanded to pray. You will be healed either physically perhaps, but most certainly spiritually through the forgiveness of your sins, through the encouragement of your soul. And whether your body is healed physically or whether your soul is transported to glory, you are healed in Jesus' name through faith. We're commanded to do this. Now there's other aspects to this that I think are difficult and that people have a lot of questions about. But James is saying, look, Christian community, pray. Pray for each other. Confess your sins and pray and be reunited together. Altogether, he's saying that prayer is tapping into the extraordinary resources that we need to use no matter the circumstances, both personally in the individual Christian life and corporately in the Christian community. We are to be a praying place. Prayer may not remove your affliction. Prayer may not remove your affliction, but it will most certainly transform you in the midst of your affliction. And I think that that's the business that God is really about. Not necessarily changing your circumstances to make it easier, but to change you in the midst of your circumstances to be made more like Jesus. And that's what James means when he's talking about the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith is simply faith exercised from a believing soul. Now, James is smart. He's a good pastor. And he knows us better, perhaps, than we know ourselves. And he is, at this point, thinking that we are looking for a reason to say, okay, that's great for you, and that's great for them, but that doesn't work for me. I'm different, right? I'm not a good prayer, and I don't know what it, you know, this doesn't apply to me. And he knows that we're looking for a reason, perhaps, to get around his command. So here comes this illustration, then. Here comes Elijah in verse 17. Here's this illustration of someone just like you. Again, this is Elijah from 1 Kings. And you would think, you know, if you're going to choose an example of someone to to pray to encourage us, why would you choose a prophet? Why would you choose one of the most extraordinary prophets in all the Old Testament to say, hey, he's just like you and do it like him? Because we look at people in the Bible and we say, no, I'm not like them. They're a prophet. They're They're like a superhero in the characters of the story, right? Actually, that's not James's point at all. Notice how he says in verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was a man with a nature like ours. Which is true. Because if you read more about Elijah and if you want, you want to go back later, read, read about Elijah from 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19. And he had 
for all the highs that he had, which he was one of the most powerful prophets in the Old Testament, speaking authoritatively to kings and decrying idolatry and false gods, rivaling the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. But he would have these heights and he would come down from these lows and be totally despondent. I'm worthless. I'm not any good at what God is calling me to do. He would have highs. He would have lows. He would have moments of incredible power and be gripped by passion for God. And then he would come into moments of pity and self-preservation. The point that James is making when he reaches back into the Old Testament is not to give you someone to say, measure yourself up against this and see how you never stack up. He's saying, no, he's just, he's just like you. He's just a man just like you. He's made of the same stuff. His nature is just like ours. He's a righteous man. But then you say, well, who's a righteous man? Who could possibly be that? The Bible calls all believers righteous. Not because they are inherently righteous within themselves. That's not a righteous person. Usually we think people use the term righteous and they talk about self-righteous. They, they think that they're much too full of themselves. And they, we use the word righteous person or we might categorize as someone who is so close to God that they have so much goodness in their life that they can use it as a bargaining chip with God. And they can kind of, you know, put that on the table and say, Lord, do this for me because I've done this for you. And that's not what the Bible is talking about when it talks about a righteous man, the prayer of a righteous man. And that's not why Elijah is being called upon. Elijah is looked upon here. Again, in verse 17, it says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain. And so when we read 1 Kings 17 and 18, there was a big time gap in between. Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain. And then he prayed that it would rain, and it rained. Is James telling you, pray for a drought, and then pray for a deluge? That's actually not what's going on here, because heaven was closed for three and a half years, because Elijah prayed that this would be so, because the people had turned away from God, and they had turned towards false gods, and they turned away from the one true God, and Elijah was praying for this, and here's why. And here's why James says, here's Elijah. Elijah is not given as an example here because he has extraordinary faith. Elijah is not given here as an example because he has uh, an incredible grasp upon all spiritual things or because he's especially powerful or because he's especially impressive in any sense. What's the secret to Elijah's life and the effectiveness of his prayer? What's the big secret about prayer? You know, people want to ask that question. You can ask that question about Elijah here. What's the secret? You're probably going to be dissatisfied with the answer. Elijah knew his Bible. That's actually the point. Elijah would have taken out a scroll of Deuteronomy and read in chapter 28 that God said that if my people turn from me, I will cause rain to fall from the sky like dust. If my people turn. And the people had turned. And so Elijah prayed Thus, that it wouldn't rain in accord with God's promise. And when the people came to a point of realizing we have turned from our God, we must turn back. Then Elijah said, Lord, bring the rain. 
in accord with God's promise that if my people come back to me, I will bless their lands with rain. And so when Elijah prayed for drought and then rain, he wasn't just coming up with it out of nowhere. He was praying in accord with God's promise. He was taking God's word and then praying it back to God. This kind of prayer, James is saying, is about believing God's word, taking hold of it, and then saying, Lord, keep your promise. It's like a child coming to their father, perhaps a young child, and saying, Daddy, you promised. You promised you would do this. And it's, it's that sense that James is saying Elijah took hold of God's word and said, Lord, you promised. Will you act in accord with your promise? And that's what the Bible teaches about the nature of prayer in its essence. It is not that we are asking God to suddenly give us the controls and then act as our emissary to the world, Lord, do this because I say so, but rather... Lord, bring me into conformity of your ways and let your kingdom come and your will be done. And Lord, shape me first in that sense. So we learn to pray in accord with God's word and in accord with God's will. That means that, 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 that prayer is not worked up from our emotional life or our circumstances. It is given in support of what God has said in scripture. And so our wrestle is not to make God do what we want but our wrestling to come into the conformity of what God has said in our word so that we can say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Who said that first? The Lord Jesus, didn't he? On the night of his arrest, Lord, I would have it this way, but I am resigning myself to your will and submissive to follow. And, and praying like that is what it means to grow in Christian maturity in our prayers, as James says. This is, this is the prayer of a righteous person that works power. What's the implication then, obviously? Say it quickly. Pray, right? Pray. But he's not talking about some extraordinary Christian life in which you call down droughts and call down hurricanes. He's talking about the ordinary Christian life in which you grow in your confidence of God's promises. And so the implication there is, is do I know enough of what God has promised me so that I have content in my prayer to then go to God and say, Lord, you promised. You promised to, to shape me into the image of Christ and make me more patient. You promised. I'm struggling, but you promised and I believe the promise. Lord, I'm struggling to forgive fill in the blank, but you promised to work forgiveness into my heart as Christ has forgiven me and called me to forgive others. Help me, you promised. Again, the issue is not that you or I have tremendous faith. It's not about the amount of your faith at all. It's the fact that we have tremendous promises from a good and faithful Father who we cling to and trust and say, you promised, as we pray thy will be done. We trust the one who made the promises. And James is saying here at the end, you can do it. You can do it. You're made of the same stuff as Elijah. The great prophet Elijah, he's just like you. He did it, trusting God's promises, and you can do it too. 
Jesus promises to never leave or forsake you, to form you into the image of Christ, to lead you through seasons of trial, to purify you. Do you believe his promise and will you take that promise back to him in prayer? I want to leave you with a couple thoughts here from a few uh, members of church history that we look to oftentimes for counsel. William Cooper was a great hymn writer. He was best friends with John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. And William Cooper was a man struck with depression to the extent that he attempted to take his life multiple times. William Cooper moved in with John Newton and stayed with him for 16 months. And in the course of those 16 months, they worked on a collection of hymns together called the Olney Hymns. And number 29 in the Olney Hymn collection is this exhortation to prayer. And it concludes with this thought. And I want you to read that on the bottom of your outline. Because he's talking about all these words that we say, that oftentimes we speak in vain. We're wasting our breath in so many ways. And he's saying, if we would just pray. When he writes, we're half the breath thus vainly spent, to heaven in supplication sent, your cheerful song would oftener be, hear what the Lord has done for me. If we take all of our anxieties that we're constantly speaking about, if we would but send them to heaven, we would more frequently be able to say, the Lord has stood by me in his faithfulness. Look what he's done for me. Thomas Watson said, the only way to do it is to do it. <laughs> it's my translation of that. By prayer we learn to pray. You can't get better at something that you don't do. By prayer we learn to pray. And one final thought here, look, if you're just struggling and you don't know what to say, pray God's word back to him. Open up the book of Psalms and find a psalm for where you are at. Are you grieving? Are you sorrowful? Are you happy? Are you struck with sickness? Wherever you are, there is a psalm for you to read back to God in prayer. And if you need help finding a psalm for your situation, there are people who want to help you with all of that. Let us help you. Now again, all of that could have been summarized and maybe you wish I had just said it, right? Pray. End of sermon. But it's more than that, isn't it? Because it takes more learning and growth in our Christian life. The prayer of faith is the expression of the believing soul. May it be so among us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray, Lord, that by your spirit that you would help us to apply it in small ways, and grand ways, but Lord, in some way, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.